Well, Merry Christmas, everyone. It's great to welcome you to this, unbelievably, the fourth and last Sunday of Advent. This, of course, will be the week of our Christmas Eve services and our Christmas Eve Eve services and our Christmas Eve 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 services, and I look forward to seeing you and seeing you and seeing you and seeing you and seeing you. We already had an early Christmas present. My beloved uh, baby girl, uh, the Reverend Rachel Toon, has joined us for a couple of weeks. It's good to have my girl here. A daughter of this church, uh, ordained in this church, and uh, I know you are very proud of her as we are too. You all know I adore my wife, but do you want to know how much I love my wife? Last week, uh, I watched a Hallmark Christmas movie with her. <laughs> Sister Swap. Hometown holiday. Guys, how many of you joined with me in that? Yeah. It was uh, predictable. It was romantic. It was uh, lots of music, lots of decorations, lots of cooking, lots of long, significant conversations between the sisters. It was riveting. In some ways, Luke's account of Christmas is kind of like a Hallmark movie. Luke is the gospel story that has the songs and the poems. There's conversations between two pregnant women and angels singing in the sky with Christmas lights decorating it and shepherds showing up with a fuzzy lamb in hand to visit the newborn Jesus. Luke's account is sweet. It is entirely Mary's story. Joseph only hardly appears mentioned in Luke's account. But if Luke is the Hallmark movie version of Christmas, then Matthew is like another beloved Christmas movie classic, Die Hard. <laughs> Matthew's account is rough and tumble. It is manly. It is violent. Uh, Matthew has the story of the wise men who make this epic, miraculous two-year journey to find and to discover the, the Christ child. It, it was miraculous, by the way, because it is the first time in recorded history that three men got lost, stopped, and asked directions. <laughs> Matthew is Joseph's side of this story. It tells how the angels appeared to him in his dreams. It tells how Joseph led his family to safety in Egypt. And Matthew also recounts the most disturbing and seemingly inappropriate episode to appear in the Christmas story, what we call the slaughter of the innocents. This is a story that never makes it into the Christmas pageant. It doesn't often get preached in Advent, but you're going to hear it today. So let us turn to a part of God's Word, the Christmas story, Matthew chapter 2, the second half of it, beginning with verse 13. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. Drop down to verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem 
and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Verse 19, But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in the city called Nazareth. This is the word of the Lord. Near the church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, a 7th century church of the Nativity, there is a site that is called the Cave of the Innocents. And it contains a pile of ancient human bones, purportedly those of the infants who were killed by King Herod in this story. The cue to, for people to get into the grotto where Jesus was born is always enormously long. It takes forever. The line to get into the cave of the innocents, usually not too long. People don't want to dwell on this part of the Christmas story. We don't sing carols about the slaughter of the innocents. It just doesn't fit into our Christmas story. It is a violent departure. In the spring of 1983, I was driving from Fresno to Bakersfield, uh, it was a warm day, as they all are down there. Uh, our, my car was on cruise control, the radio was droning away, and I was sleepy. And so I thought to myself, I'll just rest my eyes for a few seconds. And I did, and fell asleep doing 70 miles an hour in the fast lane of Highway 99. I I was jolted awake when I swerved into the median, and in an adrenaline surge, I, I jerked the wheel violently back across and ended up going clear across all the lanes of traffic, and then overcorrected again back and forth several times until finally I regained control of my car. I have never rested my eyes while driving since then, by the way. Halfway through Matthew chapter 2, we experience a change of direction in the story that is almost as violent as that moment was for me on Highway 99. And it comes at verse 13. See, verse 12 concludes the story of the Magi, of these Persian wise men who came seeking the child and found him. They, we, are, we are told they fall down on their faces, as I demonstrated a couple of weeks ago. They fall down on their faces. They present him with these great precious treasures in keeping with his royalty. It is, it's a very powerful and touching moment to see these dignitaries on their face before a toddler declaring him to be king of the Jews. That ends in verse 12, and then comes verse 13. The very next verse, we are jerked violently in another direction. Now when the Magi had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And you say, what? Only moments ago, only words ago, Jesus was worshipped as king of the Jews, and now he is fleeing from Herod's Gestapo. In fact, 
the threat is so dire, it is so eminent that we discover a little bit farther on that they leave in the middle of the night. They don't even have time to wait. They go from royalty being worshipped to asylum seekers on a midnight lamb in one verse. Now that I'm a, a grandpa, I have been reminded of how complicated it is to go anywhere with a baby. I perhaps once knew, but I had forgotten. I remember again all of the accoutrement, all the bottles and the diapers and the changes of clothes when you have diaper blowouts and the car seats and the porta cribs and the binkies and handy wipes and toys and books and it is a grand production like of Aida. I mean it, it cannot be rushed. Now I know that they had less stuff to deal with back in Bethlehem but still to rouse a child to pack up to dash out in the middle of the night running for your life. It is a most unsettling turn in Matthew's unsettling story of Christmas. And it's about to get worse. No sooner have they cleared the city limits of Bethlehem than Herod's goon squad arrives. And it's a nightmare that we haven't seen since Pharaoh ordered the execution of all of the Jewish baby boys back in Egypt. Uh, we are told that every male child in Bethlehem was torn from his mother's arms and slain before her eyes. Now, to be fair, Bethlehem was a small town, probably no more than three or four hundred people. The number of boys this age might have been seven or ten. Still, one is too many. It was a horrific, barbaric act and perfectly in keeping with the maniacal man on the throne, Herod the Great. When the angels gathered in the skies over Bethlehem in Luke's account, they promised that the coming of this Jesus would usher in peace on earth. But here in Matthew's story, the promise of peace seems cruelly ironic. Where is the peace for those ten families whose babies have been butchered before their eyes? Where is the peace for the holy family that is now fleeing for their lives? Peace on earth. We're still waiting aren't we? We're still waiting. We have Russian troops amassed at the Ukrainian border. We have China threatening to invade Taiwan. Record-setting murder rates in our largest cities. You can't even shop at Macy's without finding yourself in the middle of a flash mob that is there to rob the joint. Peace on earth. We could use some peace on earth. This congregation could use some peace on earth. I got a call this last week from a man who is dying? Where is his peace this Christmas time? Another man is racked with guilt because he had to put his mom into a care facility. Our elders were on a Zoom call Thursday night with a patient who is in ICU in critical care. Another family is grappling with leukemia and just got the news that their granddaughter had a miscarriage. And yesterday I helped a man lay his beloved wife to rest. So where is their peace in this season. Failing health, struggling marriages, uncertain jobs, rebellious kids, tornadoes, Omicron. <laughs> peace on earth. How in the world do we experience shalom, wholeness, in this tumultuous earth? So for some guidance this morning, I want to turn to Joseph, the silent one. We never hear a single 
word from Joseph. Not one. We don't have a speech from him. We don't have a prayer from him that might help us to understand how to experience God's peace in tumultuous times. Like so many men, he doesn't talk too much. But what he does is act. He shows us how to protect and defend the peace of his family. And he does it with two simple ideas. Here they are. Arise and take the child. Arise and take the child. Four times these words are included in this very brief passage. We see it in verse 13. The angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Arise and take the child and flee to Egypt. Verse, 15, verse 14. He arose and took the child. Then after Herod's death, in verse 20, Arise and take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. Verse 21. And he arose and took the child. Four times in a very short section. You need to know repetition always means something in the Bible. And I'll confess, I had never even noticed this until one of the members of my own life group pointed it out. And I realized the power of these two simple commands. Arise and take the child. If you want to experience God's peace, especially in these anxious times, then first you need to arise. Now in Joseph's case, that simply meant Wake up. Get out of bed. God spoke to him in dreams, telling him the next thing that he wanted him to do. And it started with him then waking up and getting up and getting out of bed and getting moving. Now, I'll admit, I admit this kind of activism, this is my sweet spot. I recently took a strength finders test, which ranks 34 aspects of your personality to help you understand how you tick. My number one strength is activator which is defined this way. You can make things happen by turning thoughts into action. You want to do things now rather than simply talking about them. And most of the church would say, duh. That's a big surprise. So I tend to be kind of action-oriented, and that's my bias, and so it might be my bias in this story, but I don't think so. I do think that the angel's instructions to Joseph were a call to action. A crisis was on the way, and God told Joseph what to do, and then he said, now, arise and get going. Get doing it. Get moving. I am sure that there are many of us today who are not experiencing God's peace, especially in some tumultuous time, because we are sitting on our spiritual butts. We know that we need to do something next. We probably have a sense of what it ought to be. We know we need marriage counseling. We know that we need to treat our depression. We know that we ought to go to celebrate recovery. We know that we ought to tell our wives how much we appreciate them. We know that we ought to spend more quality time with our kids. We know that we need to change the way that we eat and the way that we exercise. But we stay in bed, stay in indecision, stay in our grief, stay in our depression, stay in our unhealthy habits, stay in our bad relationships, stay in spiritual inertia. We sense God's prompting. We know that if we don't rise and do these things, we're not going to find any peace. We know that, and yet we do nothing about it. And the Lord says, arise, get going. The Christmas story is filled with people who heard God's call and arose. Mary arose and embraced her supernatural pregnancy. Shepherds arose and went to Bethlehem. Magi arose and followed the star. Simeon and Anna arose and went to, to temple. Joseph arose from his dreams four times. 
And he did what the Lord told him to do. He acted, and then he waited for God's next command. You can continue to live in turmoil, or you can arise and take your first step toward peace. Arise, he says. And then the second thing he says is take the child. And again, it's repeated four times. And you might say, well, of course, what is he going to do? Leave him there? He's his earthly father. He's responsible for caring for him. And of course, that's true. But again, repetition always means something in the Bible. Anytime you see something repeated, you say, hmm, better look at that again. And I wonder if there's more here than just marching orders for Joseph and his family. I wonder if this is a hint of what the rest of this gospel will come to say. From now on, as you move forward in life, especially in times of turmoil and anxiety, make sure Jesus is with you. Make sure Christ is right there in the center of, at the heart of everything you do. And again, you would say, well, what do you expect a pastor to say in a sermon? Of course, Christians are supposed to put Jesus at the center of their lives. But honestly, beloved... Honestly, everyone here, how often is he an afterthought? How often do we shunt Jesus off to the side, put him in our religious box, give him a one-hour nod to God on a weekly basis on Sunday, and then go about our own business? One of the blessings of anxious times is that we suddenly become re-aware of how desperate we are without Jesus. Last week I shared with you that I struggle at times with anxiety and depression and have for most of my life. I have discovered though the blessing that in those anxious times I find myself constantly aware of what is always true and that is I need Jesus. Always. In every aspect of my life at all times And the more aware I am of Him, the more attuned I am to Him, the more focused I am upon Him, the more peace I will experience in my life, whatever the tumult I might find myself in. Of course, for Joseph, it's kind of different in that he was was indeed responsible for protecting this child. That's That's how vulnerable God made Himself. One of Rachel's favorite preachers, the ancient John Christostom, pointed out that Jesus had just been proclaimed the Savior of the world, and he couldn't even save himself. He needed a dad to do that. But the tables have now been turned, haven't they? Our journey with Jesus begins when we take him. Our journey begins when we we receive him into our lives, into our hearts. But from that moment on, it is not just we who take Jesus It is Jesus who takes us. I've seen a lot of stupid bumper stickers in my time. And I may be about to offend offend someone. And if I see you out scraping a sticker off in the the, parking lot afterwards, I'll know it was you. But this may be the stupidest of all. Here it is. Jesus is my co-pilot. I want you to think about what that is saying for a moment. Here's what it's saying. I'm in control of my life. I have my hand firmly on the wheel of my life. Now, if something happens, if, uh, if it gets a little out of control or I have a calamity, at least I have someone reliable sitting next to me. Jesus can take the wheel when I get in over my head. Is that really what it means to be a Christian? I have news for you folks. 
every one of you is in over your head already, right now. Jesus is my co-pilot. I am Jesus' co-pilot. Or really, I'm sitting back in the back seat of the plane somewhere or in the luggage compartment. It is Christ who is flying this plane of mine. Christ who takes me where he wants me to go. Jesus is no longer a baby to be protected. He is a Lord to be obeyed. He is a master to be followed. He is a shepherd to be trusted. Last week, I, I talked about how shepherds were a despised and ostracized members of, the, of that culture, of that community at the time when Jesus was born. Isn't it amazing then, in light of that, the adult Jesus would actually choose to identify himself with those social outcasts? For later on, the Lord Jesus would say, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep. My sheep know me. They know my voice. I protect my sheep. I would lay down my life for my sheep. That's what the good shepherd does. And suddenly when you hear the words of the master saying those things, a beloved psalm takes on new meaning. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, for you are with me. Whatever life may bring, it doesn't matter. As long as the Lord, the good shepherd, is with me, I am blessed and I am safe and I have peace. Arise and take the child. And they did. But I have often wondered if Mary experienced survivor's guilt. Think about it. They escaped. Her son was spared. But those poor mothers who remained behind suffered unspeakable loss, unspeakable horror. Arise and take the child. They heeded that warning, but did Mary ever feel guilty about heeding that warning? Well, I would remind you of this. The death of Mary's son was not avoided. It was only delayed. In fact, Jesus was a baby who was born to die. And 30 years later, Jesus went to the cross to pay the price for all broken, anxious, peaceless humanity. Thirty years later, he would die for those ten boys who had died for him and every other child in the world. Then it would be Mary's turn to mourn. But three days later, as Jesus lay dead in the tomb, he heard the whispered voice of his heavenly Father saying, Arise, arise, and take my children to a place of eternal safety. There's another bumper sticker that I do like better than the first one, and it goes like this. No Christ, no peace. No Christ, no peace. Arise and take the child, and you will experience peace even in your anxious times. Heavenly Father, we, we are astounded by your mercy, your grace, your willingness to sacrifice your son, to send him from your side, from the 
perfection of your relationship from the perfection of heaven. Send him to the very world that he created and to become one of us, a baby, a helpless baby that needed to be protected by his daddy, needed to run when danger came. And yet in the midst of that, we, we, we see a man who lived in obedience and trust and knew the peace of God despite the anxiety of the time. Lord Jesus, there are people this day who are not at peace. They are anxious. They are unsettled. They are grieving. They've lost jobs. They've lost health. They've lost lives. And it is hard to find peace in such a time. Lord, may your spirit surprise us and overwhelm us with the peace that the world cannot know because we serve a risen Savior. And we pray it in his name. Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Our worship services are Sundays at 8.30, 10 o'clock, and 11.30 a.m. We'd love to meet you. To learn more about Chapel Hill and find out about upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org.